Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Whether you're joining us online or you're here in person, uh, it's a blessing for you to join us. Uh, this has been a very a special event. I've been looking forward to this for a few months. And we're here to talk about, unfortunately, a very difficult topic. Uh, but it is a topic that has thrust upon us. Uh, perhaps the greatest reduction to the absurd of what's come to be called gender ideology is the effects that it is having on children's minds and bodies. The result of this happening for most people and most families behind the scenes uh, has meant a number of teenagers that have come to regret their decisions, have worked their way along the pathway, so-called gender-affirming care, which is a euphemism for a particular pathway that starts with, usually in schools behind parents' backs. Uh, it's called social transition. It's really a, a psychosocial intervention in which children's names and pronouns, the ways in which they're treated and described in schools changes then often followed by puberty-blocking drugs, cross-sex hormones, uh, and then later in adolescence, radical surgery on their bodies. Uh, people who uh, have gone through this and then have regretted that uh, fall under a name, and we don't have a better name for it, so it's called detransitioners. Uh, we will uh, maybe hear uh, today, figure out a better name. Actually, I don't like that, but that's, that's the term we're stuck with. And I am joined and delighted to be joined by a new friend, 18-year-old young detransitioner from Central California, Chloe Cull. Chloe, thank you very much. So Chloe, you are you um, hail from the great state of California, and so I can tell you, those of us that are not in California tend to think that the craziest stuff only happens in California, but the reality is this stuff is happening everywhere. Uh, and but you, in some ways, you've described yourself online, I know, as the sort of canary of the coal mine uh, uh, on this issue. So you were about 12 when you started suffering gender dysphoria. You started early after that. You had a double mastectomy. Uh, at 15, very quickly by 16, you regretted it, and you're now 18. Yeah. Um, and if I recall correctly, it was just in 20, maybe spring of 2022 that you first talked about this publicly. But let's let's sort of start at the beginning. Describe those those early years, say when you were 12 years old. What was going on? What what were you thinking? Um, I mean, really, I think it's important to start with my early childhood. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I'm the youngest of five kids. Um, I live in a two-parent household. Um, overall, I had a pretty, I'd say, normal early childhood, mm -hmm. but I wasn't exactly the easiest kid to raise. I did have some <laughs> behavioral issues and issues with emotional regulation, and um, I was struggling a lot in, in school, um, both socially and with focusing in class. Um, so would you say you're both socially, so normal childhood, normal, generally you know, kind of normal family situation, uh, struggles, normal struggles or kind of unusual struggles? Because of course in, uh, all of us that went through school uh, pretty much uniformly say we didn't have that great of experience all the time, but would you say you had some very particular cha challenges at this stage? Um, well... I started getting bullied at a pretty young age mm. while I was in um, while I was in elementary school. Um, I didn't really get along with other other kids my age. Um, boys would pick on me. I wouldn't really get along with girls. Um, as I got older, I did find it a little more easy to find to make friends, but it was usually with boys, and I never really ever fit in with other girls my age. Um, did you describe yourself as a tomboy? Yeah, yeah, I was okay. I was definitely a bit of a tomboy. Yeah. I did also have a bit of a feminine streak, but. As I got older, I got kind of, I'm not exactly sure why, but I got kind of ashamed of that, and I tried to keep a more masculine facade, I guess you could say. Mm. Um, I mean, a lot of the, the cartoons and comics I would read um, would portray girls, and especially like the feminine girl characters, as kind of like 
all like bubbly, pink, stupid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> this wasn't your ideal? <laughs> no. Um, but, you know, as I started to get older and relationships and socialization at school started to get more clicky and a little more, um, I guess you could say, gender-based, um, I started noticing that I didn't really get along with the other girls and I started to wonder, like, just what exactly was setting me apart from them. Mm -hmm. um, started to become a little bit insecure about this and I also started developing some body issues around this time. Um, I started using social media um, after I got my first phone at 11. Um, okay. my, the first platforms I used um, were primarily I used Instagram and Snapchat, which both of those are very like image-oriented, yeah. and I would see a lot of very, you could say, idealized or sexualized images of adult women and young women on there. Um, and you know, I, I noticed like a very particular body type and I guess you'd say faces, mm -hmm. just 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 features in general that I didn't really match up to, and started to think like you know because these these women yeah. they were very 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 curvy um mm -hmm. had very had very large hips thighs breasts small waist and i didn't really look like this you know i was i was a kid yeah i wasn't very developed but i was also a bit on the tomboyish side i i was a little athletic so i had like larger shoulders mm -hmm. my chest wasn't as developed and i had a bit of muscle in my body i also like to have my my hair short then and i mean i felt like if anything i looked Compared to other girls, I felt like I looked like a boy, and it, it just felt like I couldn't really match up to other women. And so it, wasn't, so it wasn't that you rejected this idea of femininity or this particular portrayal. You just thought, this, this doesn't look like me. This, this doesn't match me. And so that plus, would you say, the kind of influence of social media and maybe things you heard in school? How did yeah. you initially get the idea of transitioning? Yeah, it was through social media, actually. I, yeah. This was the topic of being gay or lesbian or bisexual mm -hmm. or transgender was never covered in any class that I, that I was in. I mean, I, I just graduated last year and I, the subject was never really brought up, but um, it was basically entirely just social media. Yep. Um, on Instagram, um, I started seeing like a lot of um, LGBT content first through like, um, like communities about like video games or anime or artwork. Um, a lot of the people in those communities were, um, for some reason, they just so happened to identify as like gay mm -hmm. or non-binary or transgender, and I started seeing a lot more content that was focused on that. And um, I mean, would, so would you say that? So did this idea of transitioning, of identifying as a boy, or at least not identifying as a girl, did it come on slowly, or did you have a kind of realization at some point that you yeah. were persuaded? Which yeah. Yeah. So, so um, the algorithm started to change and yeah. show me more content that was LGBT focused, mm -hmm. and um, it basically went from like artwork and people who just so happened to talk about like their their life experiences to. Um, you could say it was propaganda, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, so you, did you go through this kind of then the traditional pathway that started with social transition? Yeah. Did this happen? Did this happen? Did you decide to do this before you telling your parents, or did you describe this to your parents? I mean, how did that that momentary? So there had to be a transition where you were socially transitioning, right? Describe a little bit about that. Yeah. So I started to wonder a little bit about what my identity was, why I was attracted mm -hmm. to what my gender identity was, and I went through a few labels before I finally settled on, well, I'm just not a girl, I'm just, I'm a boy, actually. Okay. <laughs> um, so you I waited a little bit to tell my parents about it. At first, I started cutting my hair mm -hmm. shorter and shorter and buying more clothes from the boys' department and stores, and I came out to some friends online, um, some people who I was closer to at school, um, one of my older sisters, and then eventually I decided that I wanted to go through a medical transition mm -hmm. and that I would have to get my parents, my parents on board with that, and I came out to them in a letter. 
So how old, you came out, so you told, you wrote a letter to your parents. How old were you at this point? I was 12, going okay. on 13. Okay, so you're 12 years old. Um, and so it really wasn't until you wanted to get, say, on puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones that you decided to tell the, your parents, and you wrote a letter. So why did you write a letter? Um, I mean, it was kind of scary to start a conversation like that face-to-face. -face. I mean, I knew that was a big thing to bring up to them. I mean, mm -hmm. even then, I kind of understood, like, as a parent, that's not really something you would expect to hear from your kid. Right. Um, and I was also just afraid of how they would react, so I kind of wanted to give them some time to think about it. And their initial reaction was, I mean, they wanted to be supportive of me because mm -hmm. they're my parents, they love me, right. but they also weren't, they were kind of cautious about it. They didn't really know how to approach this, and so they decided a few days after that they would start bringing me to a therapist. Okay, so you hadn't been to a therapist yet, but then at this point you went to a therapist. And so do you remember, was this a psychologist or a psychiatrist? Do you, do I can't you remember? remember exactly, okay. just a pediatric therapist, I believe. Okay, um, okay, so what happened then? Because this is, of course, for, for me and all the parents in the room, this is, <laughs> this is sort of the question, what happened with the therapist? Um, I mean, the first therapist I had was pretty lousy, he didn't really do much, he kind of just, um, I mean, the approach that pretty much every um, every physician, every psychologist I had was just the affirmative approach, right. and he never he never really questioned anything. I mean, I had I there's some stuff going on at home and school that he never just really I just went unaddressed. Mm -hmm. It was never really touched upon. Um, so he but started was, right off, as you said, the affirmative approach. So mm -hmm. in other words, assuming you re your self-report that you're really a boy, he simply yeah. took that at face value. Okay, that's crucial. Mm -hmm. and, and went from there. So it yeah. was a starting premise of the, the, the session. It wasn't something that you spent any time exploring. Mm. Yeah, um, about a month after I was referred to that therapist, about a, one or two months, um, I was referred to a gender specialist, I think, who was the one who diagnosed me with gender dysphoria. And um, I was, I was um, we switched over to another therapist because that first therapist, I'm not exactly sure what happened to him. I don't know if he was like fired or they just left. But um, just a few months after my diagnosis, um, I was referred to an endocrinologist um, to try and get me a prescription for um, blockers and hormones. And you're still 12 at this point. I'm 13. So you're 13. 13. Okay, so you're you're the ripe old age of 13 <laughs> at this point, and not 12. Uh, and so you you started on puberty blockers before cross-sex hormones, or it sounds like yeah. this happened. Okay, but there wasn't a whole lot of time. It's no, not all. Um, I'd say it was only about a matter of like three to four months between the diagnosis and then being referred to the the first um, endocrinologist, who actually didn't. Um, he refused to give me a, a prescription because he said that. Um, because of my age, there mm -hmm. were there would be risk for my brain development. But yeah, um, I never heard that again from any medical professional. Did you go to a different endocrinologist yeah. then at that point? Okay. Yeah, so and after about one or two appointments, okay. um, she gave me and my mom the uh, the consent forms for blockers to sign off on. And then okay. about a month after that, I started block I started blockers, and then. After that first blocker shot, I mm -hmm. got the consent forms for testosterone, and after a period of about one to two months, I started on the testosterone. And by this point in time, it was only about half a year yeah. um, since the diagnosis. Okay, and so had you already started puberty at this point? I'm trying to, okay. Yeah. Um, and so I guess that's why the puberty blockers, then depending on where you're in puberty, the thought would be, okay, we could do this for a little bit, but then you're gonna transition yeah. pretty quickly into cross-sex hormones. And so, um, so how, how, can you describe the experience of what it was like when you first started receiving testosterone? Um, yeah, so I, I, did, I, just, I started puberty fairly early. I was mm -hmm. about nine years old, and yeah. that's kind of what fueled um, the onset of my dysphoria, I would say. Yeah. Um, so that was I was already fairly developed, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, when I started on the blockers, I was it basically put me into a state of artificial menopause. So I started yeah. to become a little bit depressed. Um, I I was a little lethargic, and I was also experiencing hot flashes. Um, not quite unlike women in their 50s and 60s right. and so on. Um, 
very premature, it, yeah, menopause. So that's yeah. you have a few months of something that makes you lethargic mm -hmm. and tired and feeling strange. Yeah. And, and then, then I get on the testosterone, which I, I was basically waking up every day just to, just hoping to start on it as, yeah, as soon as possible. And so how did it make you finally, feel? Did, yeah, did it make I you strong, it, or what? How would you describe the feeling of the testosterone initially? I mean, it felt great. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I finally had hormones back in my body and had mm. my energy back and. You know, I, I felt better than ever. I felt like I was like I was healthy and confident. And um, you know, after only about maybe about two weeks, my voice started to drop, and okay. it was pretty dramatic. It was one of the first changes that was brought on, actually. Okay. Um, and then shortly after that, I started developing a little bit more muscle. Um, the fat distribution in my body started to change to a more masculine appearance, and I started mm. to. Um, my jawline got sharper, my hair and eyebrows got thicker, and... Um, Mostly I, things that most, yeah, the idea of energy and more muscle and less fat and thicker hair, uh, right, and eyebrows. So it, it, some have described this as a type of euphoria, mm -hmm. uh, right, at least initially. I felt like I looked good. Yeah, and so did you have the, sort of a honeymoon period on the mm -hmm. testosterone? How long would you say that lasted? I'd say maybe about like a year or so. Okay. Um, I didn't know that this was a thing though. I didn't know that, oh. I didn't really understand that how I'd feel about transition would change over the course of a few years. Mm. But um, it's important to bring up that um, there was an incident towards the end of my eighth grade school year um, when I first started transitioning. Um, mm. I was in middle school. Um, I was already kind of a social outcast at the school. Mm. Um, was that because of, of these things, or just um, it was it was before it was kind of just like that before, um, but this this kind of by transitioning it did kind of it did get a little bit worse. I mean when right. when people started noticing that I was changing my presentation, I looked kind of awkward. They did mm -hmm. pick on me a bit, and there was one particular boy who would um, he was really gross. Like he would <laughs> he would like make weird comments about me in class to other people. He would like he would physically harass me. He would even spit on me in class sometimes. My word. And one day towards the end of the school year, he actually sexually assaulted me. He he groped my chest. Um, in class? Yeah. In the classroom. Um, it was in, it was in a classroom. It was before class. Wow. Um, it was full of other people, and it seemed like nobody either noticed or cared. Um, by this point in time, um, I wasn't. I was only about like a like a B. <coughs> about a B cup, I would say. Mm -hmm. So I didn't think that my chest was very noticeable. And I often wore like t-shirts and hoodies. I never really thought that anybody would, would notice this part of me. Yeah. But he did and he took advantage of me. And I wanted to hide that part of me for the rest of my life. I didn't want anything to do with it. And I didn't want wow. the attention that I thought it would bring me. So gosh, it's hard not to imagine that's connected to the uh, this is our next step in this story. And so when did you decide, because at this point, we're just dealing with social and drug interventions, and then you moved to surgical interventions. So talk, talk a bit about that. I mean, did you, did you, when you started this process, did you realize, okay, a few years from now, I'm going to be undergoing major surgery, or did that dawn on you slowly? What, what was your thinking? Um, from the start, I was planning on getting it eventually. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's important to talk about um, how in these online communities that I initially learned about transitioning and the process of transitioning from, um, a lot of these trans-identified females um, in their artwork, they would often almost sort of glorify the scars from top surgery and the appearance of it. It was, it was almost like some sort of worship of this thing. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not just an act of removing something, but it's also the sort of fact of it and the, the photographs that are there online. I mean, do you mind talking a bit about that? So when you were, so when when did you when did the process for the uh, double mastectomy when did this start? Um, by that point in time, I was in my sophomore year. Okay. Yeah, a lot of us that are involved in this, I can tell you, have been told that this doesn't happen to minors. <laughs> incidentally. Oh yeah, it um, does. Yeah, it happens all the time. All the time. Um, before that though. You know, I had that honeymoon period um, mm. with starting my medical transition and starting to see all the physical changes and starting to become more physically fit, more active, and building muscle. 
and just feeling great about myself. And, um, you know, by the time I was in freshman year, I actually passed as the opposite sex. My, my voice was deep enough, and I, I didn't look like a girl anymore. Wow. And everybody, save for some people from elementary, middle school, um, knew me as Leo, a boy, mm -hmm. a friend. And, um, you know, I started to fit in with the boys a little bit more and make some, make some friends, more friends than I really had um, in, my, in my previous school years. And, um, I mean, there were even girls who had crushes on me, which did kind of become a problem because I, I was still attracted to males. I was boys. Still <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But now I looked like a boy, mm -hmm. and most most males aren't attracted to other males or people who look like males. Yeah. So yeah. I did have, I didn't really know that this was something that was going to happen, but my dating pool was pretty restricted. Yeah, I can imagine. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this was a major point of distress for me over the years because mm -hmm. I was, all my other friends got to go on dates and get into relationships. And I was just completely missing out on this development. And they, I felt like I was behind my peers, and I was really insecure about this, and I had a lot of shame, and I felt lonely. Um, well, and so you, loneliness, but you, and so you knew was was this doctor advice? What what was it that led you to say, okay, uh, I'm ready to take the next step here surgically? Yeah. So by the time I was in my sophomore year, I was diagnosed with depression mm -hmm. and social anxiety, and they started medicating me actually. Okay. Um, an antidepressant? I yeah, assume. yeah. Um, they put me on Wellbutrin. Okay. Um, was there any attempt by the therapist at this point to disentangle the gender dysphoria and the depression? Or, well, what, yeah. during my appointments, the therapist would ask, do your feelings of depression have to do with your gender dysphoria? And I was like, no, I mean, I'm already pretty well into my transition, and I pass as the opposite sex, so I don't really get what the problem is. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't realize until much later that it was actually my transition that was worsening um, issues that were going unaddressed or even creating new issues. Um, so, so in the middle of my sophomore year, um, I, you know, I'd been binding for a few years, and... I used a compression device called a chest binder, which had like um, a covered part of my torso, and yes. I would wear it for about maybe around like eight to twelve hours a day. When did you start that? When did you start the binder wearing? Yeah, the binder? Um, after after the groping incident, actually. After the groping very, incident. Very very soon after that okay. was when I bought my first binder. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I would I got sick of wearing this thing because I, I would I would have to wear it for so long whenever we had like guests over at the house or whenever I was out of the house in public um, and I would wear it while working out or mm -hmm. swimming and I wanted to be free of it. It just sucked to wear. Yeah. And you know I, <laughs> I had that that additional trauma from having been groped yep. and I, which I didn't I didn't recognize that I had actually um, hmm. during during that incident. Um, because nobody noticed or cared, I just kind of brushed it off as like, oh, it's just boys being boys, and if mm. I want to be a boy, then I can't cry about it. Yeah. And I knew that even if I even if I was upset by it, I couldn't reach out to anybody because if I brought it up to the school, um, they'd probably just give the kid on a slap on the wrist, and much worse could have happened to me. Um, and you know, I genuinely fell into the delusion that I was actually a boy, despite being despite living in the body of biological female. And naturally, I wanted to look like the, the boys my age. I wanted to be able to take off my shirt, mm -hmm. um, not have to worry about like comments in the locker room, or um, just be able to like work out and swim shirtless. OK, so that were, had the doctors at this point, so you're on testosterone, you're, you're using a chest binder. Had they, had they described, I mean, thinking back on this, 
uh, had they described the details of what this would do for your potential capacity to nurse children, to bear, chil bear children later in life? Was there a kind of clear and obvious disclosure of this, or was it mentioned? Yeah. So it was discussed. Yeah, they did tell and me. Did you, did, how did you feel about that? Did you not care at that point? Or? Well, I didn't care about that point because I wasn't thinking about having kids. Yeah. I was 15. Yeah, you're 15, which no 15-year-old no thinks that way. And then you're also saying you said you're under the delusion that you're a boy, and boys don't have kids. Yeah. Is that the thinking? Yeah. yeah. I was like, well, boys don't breastfeed, so why yeah. would I want to do that? Yeah. Yeah. So this is this. I think that's an absolutely crucial part of this because it's yeah. very hard. People can understand. It's easy to understand. Okay, I wasn't thinking about having kids when I was 15, uh, but I'm a boy, so I never was actually thinking about the fact that I well, I'm not going to be able to bear children or breastfeed. Right? It never occurred to me because it's not my capacity. And if you're under the delusion that you're a boy, uh, then that that's going to be the same kind of thinking you're going to you're going to undergo. So, um, how did your parents take the idea of the double mastectomy? Did they struggle with that more, or or, or was it simply kind of a part of the process at this point for them? Um, I think they really did struggle with it. Mm -hmm. I mean, throughout my my transition, they they really did struggle. My relationship with them um, was pretty pretty strained, especially towards the, the middle and later stages. Um, they were told by the doctors at the beginning um, that the regret rates are less than 1% to 2%, which isn't wow. true. We don't know that. We no. don't know that. Yeah. We don't have long-term studies. They so weren't told. Yeah. yeah. They weren't told that the rate of desistance amongst minors who haven't been medicalized is anywhere from around 60 to 90%. There, was a lot, there were a lot of things that weren't disclosed to them, right. but they were told that if I wasn't allowed to transition as I pleased, I would have been at risk of suicide. Okay. So they were told, yeah, do you want a, do you want a live son or a dead daughter, effectively? So that's, there was absolutely certain, absolute certainty on that. Uh, lack of clarity mm -hmm. on the obvious risks or simply the, the simple unknown of the risk. And then for your own part, you... You sort of understood at an abstract level, okay, I, mm -hmm. I won't ever be able to breastfeed, but so what? I'm a boy. So, yeah, this is, this is the thinking. So do you mind describing a little bit about the surgery and the aftermath and what that was like? Um, so after my first appointment with the surgeon, um, I was referred to a top surgery classroom in the, in the hospital, mm -hmm. hospital building um, that was intended for other minors and their, their families to attend and learn more about top surgery and basically get, be given propaganda. Yeah. <laughs> That's really what it was. Um, yeah. I mean, even, even in the, in the, in the surgeon's office, you know, they had, they had like pictures up of, uh, they had like photographs of patients who were post-op and they had like books full of these pictures. Um, I don't remember a single photo of like a botched surgery of, or really mm. what could, what could go wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, because they're trying to market this, but right. it's, there could be a little more, a little bit more clarity. Yeah. So, um, I mean, but when I attended this class, there, when I looked around, there were maybe about like 15, 12 to fifteen other families. Mm -hmm. um, but it kind of shocked me how young or early in the process some of these other kids were. Was it all kids and parents in this class? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So some even younger than you. I would say maybe as young as 12 even. Wow. And most of them looked like they either weren't on, they, they weren't on testosterone yet or they just started it. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of struck me that they're already um, thinking about surgery. Yeah. But I kind of just brushed it off my head. It was like, well, I guess they're all just like me and this is just, mm -hmm. this is normal. Yeah. So describe a bit about the surgery itself in the aftermath. Um, I don't know if I really want to go into detail about the, the, uh, how how they do it. I, yeah. I think it's important to bring that up because yeah. it's important to know just how awful it really is. But I also don't really want to discuss anybody. Mm -hmm. um, but you've struggled with this, right? This was a this is a huge part of the story, and I know I've heard I've watched several interviews mm -hmm. where this was a watershed uh, for you, and it's something you're now still struggling with medically. Right. Yeah, it's I, I still have some 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 complications um, mm. years after the fact, some of which have popped up just last year. Um, the way that the surgery was described to me, um, 
I guess they kind of watered it down. They simplified it a little bit just to make it a little more digestible for my 15-year-old brain. Mm-hmm. Um, I got the most common type of incision. I was actually pushing for a less invasive um, surgery, but they kept telling me, like, oh, there might be some blood supply issues. Oh, it's, uh, that's an experimental uh, incision, when really all this is experimental. Mm-hmm. But uh, So they made a cut, I think, either under or, like, on the upper side of my breast, and they would take the tissue out, leave some in for contouring purposes, but they would also um, leave an area of scraped skin, mm-hmm. um, like a like a deep knee scrape, they said, but more controlled. Right. And they would they would um, excise the nipples, and then they would they would put it in that area of scraped skin. To, they said, create a more masculine positioning and appearance of the chest. Okay. Um, Really, it's like Nazi-era experiments. Yeah, yeah. So this is both removal of the breast and also reconstruction to uh, try to make it in some way look more typically male. That's the idea. I mean, if anything, the scars mm-hmm. under, the, under the chest and around the nipple just make it obvious that you're really female, but I didn't really understand that at the time. Mm-hmm. Because most men don't have scars on their chest like that. <laughs> But, you know, after I went under the surgery, um, actually in the moments, the initial moments before I went under, you know, I was, I, on the morning of, I was, I was pretty nervous. I mean, I didn't have any doubts about it um, until after it happened, but it was like, you know, I was, I was excited. I was nervous for something that was, that I saw. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. But when I was rolled into the the operating room, you know, I was kind of just making small talk with the surgeons and the nurses about, like, mm. hi, I'm Leo, I, mm-hmm. I go to this school, and so-and-so. But I noticed there was, like, a male nurse in the back. He looked pretty young, um, but he was just, while he was preparing, he was, he was staring at me, mm-hmm. and he had this look on his face. That at the time, I didn't, really, I didn't really understand what it was, but I think he was... Was he struggling? Yeah, or do you I think he was struggling with what was happening. I think he, I think he, he, he must have been thinking like, "That's a kid. That's yeah. a kid that I'm about to operate on." Yeah. I mean, but when I when I woke up from the surgery and I was fully conscious, all the meds were off. Um, it was an outpatient surgery, so um, I went home pretty much immediately after. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, I didn't know that. <laughs> okay. So you um, went home, and so was this. So. Was this a, a kind of a cataclysm that caused you to suddenly, I mean, how quickly after this did you re- regret what had happened? I'd say about several months after. It was still um, a few months. I mean, when I woke up, I was like, great, this is a big step. I, yep. I'm finally closer to my, I guess, my real self mm-hmm. that I was told I was going to become. Um, and, you know, I was, I was happy. I was glad that I was over with it, and I was looking forward to being done with the post-op process and being fully healed and be able to go out shirtless and enjoy having the bare sun on my chest, I guess. Um, that never happened because my chest still hasn't fully healed. But um, um, So it's been over two years yeah. now. Wow. Over two years. And so it was still several months. Was there a, was there a moment in which you suddenly realized, okay, what am I doing here? Or was it something that was slowly dawning? What is it, if you could, is there a specific cause, would you say, that led you to suddenly, you know, move in the, exactly the opposite direction? It was a, it was a gradual process. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, once I went home, there was a period for about a week when uh, I couldn't really, I couldn't bathe just to keep the, everything in place and healing as it should. Um, but then after that period of time, I had to go back to the nurses to get all the stitches pulled out. And the sensation, it was, it was very dull, very numb, but I could still mm-hmm. feel everything that was going on. And mm-hmm. it, was, it was like a slap to the face, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I went home and I had to start bathing and changing my dressings and looking down at these wounds that were mm-hmm. on my chest, uh, the reality of the situation kind of hit me in the face. I mean, I, the, the process was described to me, 
but you don't really understand what it's like until you actually go through it. Um, so it was still a few months, though, because now you're describing it as a delusion. Uh, but of course, you weren't seeing it as a delusion at the, yeah, that I thought, point, right? I thought that I was going to get better. That the I, I kept getting worse, and I thought it was just part of the post-op process that mm -hmm. that kind of depression was just normal, and that it would get better over time. But it didn't. Um, shortly after, I started to realize that I missed looking more pretty, um, having a more soft, more feminine form, and mm -hmm. being being able to present myself more femininely and wear like makeup or skirts or dresses and things like that. Um, but I was very ashamed of this because obviously I, I didn't look like a woman anymore. Yeah. I was on testosterone for about um, two and a half to maybe three years by this point. Okay. Um, I didn't look like a girl and I didn't have breasts anymore. Yeah. Um, but in the comfort of my room or whenever nobody was home, I would, um, you know, I, I bought some skirts and dresses and worn some of my old, old girl clothes in secret. And... My my feelings about this just got worse over time, mm -hmm. and I never really talked to anybody about it. Um, but um, the next school year, my junior year started up, and then COVID hit, and uh, my grade performance and even my attendance in class had dropped to pretty much near zero. Mm -hmm. And it got to the point that my parents just had to take me out of school, and they decided to put me in an online-only program, and one of the classes that I took in that program was a class on psychology. Hmm. And there was a big, uh, there was a section on uh, child psychology and development and, uh, and parenting. Um, and there was one particular lesson um, that was on, um, it was on an experiment with, uh, with monkeys, with rhesus monkey infants. Um, that used a. It would use they they used um, surrogate mothers made out of either wire or cloth to. Um, do you know Do you know the one I'm talking I did, about? Yes, I can't remember. Exactly. Yeah. I can't remember That's the, the, the name. Wire yeah, I can't remember the name of it. But yes. One of the. Um, but the little monkeys, what, mm. they want something even a yeah even mm. a replica of a mom. Yeah, that was yeah. the first time though that I really had thought about like nursing and breastfeeding and how wow. being a parent might look for me. And one of the one of the takeaways from the lesson was that breastfeeding is a major part of um, the bond, building the bond between mother and child, and that that bond will later affect um, a child's social and emotional and cognitive development. And I realized that. When I got my breast taken away, there is so much more that was taken away than just yeah. some organs, like I thought they were. Um, I felt like a monster. Mm. And this is from an online psychology class on yeah, child development. Yeah, that was That's the learning about being a parent was all yeah. it took. Wow, um, and rhesus monkeys. It's a highly improbable kind of uh, moment. <laughs> Honestly, the one good th story I've ever heard about the online COVID experience. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm on the spectrum, so I kind of get some weird takeaways from some things. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> but, yeah, and so uh, you've mentioned that in some of your interviews that you're mm -hmm. on the spectrum. And so was this diagnosed early on, or is this something no, that, okay, um, no, it wasn't. So it's something you've learned more recently? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, those of us that follow this know that girls that are on the autism spectrum are... They're harder to diagnose. Yeah, they're hard to diagnose, but they also seem to be, uh, I'll, I'll put it in the crosshairs of the evangelists for uh, gender transition, and so much more susceptible to this. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. um, I mean, everybody, everybody my age that I know is transitioning or is dysphoric. They're either on the spectrum or they have some other learning disorder or they have like depression or social anxiety or they have a history of abuse or sexual assault, um, neglect, or like issues with their family, so. Wow. Well, I wish we had more time. We're coming to the end, and so I'm wanting, um, you know, there's still a major part of your story here because you are now a detransitioner, right? You've fully changed your mind about this. Um, in fact, so far as I can remember, it was, was it April of 22? When, how recently was it that you first spoke about this publicly? Um, so I stopped transitioning in about May of 2021. Okay. And, um, 
by, by that point in time, I, my, my, all my relationships in school were basically destroyed by, by COVID and mm -hmm. all, the, all the restrictions that were in place. Right. So I was pretty much interacting with people strictly online, and I would talk about my transition regret. Um, I got a lot of vitriol and harassment for it, actually, mm. um, just for talking about my experience. Uh, I was told right. that, I was, that I deserved to feel this way or that I was making other people uncomfortable and that it was harming the transgender community mm -hmm. just by talking about my experiences and that I, that I should shut up. And I did for a little bit because I couldn't really, I couldn't handle that. I couldn't handle the treatment that I was getting. Mm. And um, I certainly didn't want to harm the community people that I thought loved me yeah. and supported me. But um, at the same time, I started researching detransition and reading into other people's experiences okay. and interacting with other detransitioned people online. And I very quickly learned that um, all these people and even my medical professionals had been lying to me yes. and that I wasn't harming anybody by speaking out. Um, quite the opposite, actually, that I should Absolutely. continue to speak out. Absolutely. And <laughs> Thank you. And at first, um, I just started speaking out on personal social media, and uh, I got a lot of backlash for it. I lost a lot of, fr a lot of friends, um, both online and from school, and I basically had to traverse my senior year completely alone and just pick up the pieces of my life without really any, any friends. Um, I did manage to, I did persevere though, and I did manage to make some new friends outside of school who I know really support me and even if I don't agree with, even if we don't see eye to eye on everything, mm -hmm. we're able to get past our differences and really have each other's backs. Um, and I've also made amends with my family. Mm. Um, and really, they've, been, they've, they've really been the ones helping me get through this. I mean, in that period when I realized that I regretted my transition, um, there was basically like a, like a week where I just didn't do anything. I just stayed in bed all day, except when I was getting something to eat or use the restroom. Um, my parents, they would come up to my door and like bring me mm -hmm. food, um, offer a talk, offer some support, and I mean that's really what kept me going on. Wow. Um, but I decided to go public um, with my with my story and start um, speaking out on Twitter. Um, I'd say in about April of last year. Um, okay. I made my account in in February, and at first I used it for like personal purposes. I didn't mm -hmm. really, I didn't really take it seriously, but then I realized like. I could, I could, I can make a huge platform out of this. I yeah. could, I could, like I need, I need to spread the word. I don't, you know, when when I first started talking about this, um, it was mostly adults who had transitioned who were speaking about their experiences, but no, nobody who had transitioned as minors really, and nobody quite as young as I was. Right. And this, despite that, I knew that there, there has to be, a lot more other kids who are in my situation and they almost definitely are in the situation that I was where they're being silenced by the people who, who they thought supported them and they need a voice and I wanted to, I wanted to be a voice for you them and encourage them to speak up as well. It's hard to believe. So it was, it, you have not had a Twitter account uh, even a year yet. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> um, the amount of bravery for an 18 year old, especially given what you've described, honestly, it, it's just absolutely staggering. Um, everyone that sort of gets into this issue probably has some kind of personal loss. Yours has been quite visceral. Uh, but I'm certainly, just speaking for myself, convinced that your testimony is absolutely crucial. You're an uh, amazing young woman and an amazing testimony. Um, and I hope you find a much larger community of support than of detractors. Um, I want to open it up at least for those in the room to be able to ask questions. Um, but uh, we're really Thankful to have you in this fight. Thank um, you so much for having honestly. me here. It's so I don't know where the microphones are. So, okay, so we have a I microphone. Do, I do have one thing to add, yeah. though. Um, my, parent, my parents get a lot of crap from, mm -hmm. from both sides. I mean, the. I'm sure. I mean, people on the right and feminists tell me that I should go out of my way to sue them and mm -hmm. that 
it's their fault that they got me into the situation and um, it's really not true. I really don't yeah. believe that. Um, people often talk about how the kids in these situations are vulnerable, but I think really it's the families as a whole that are vulnerable. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, from a, I mean, my parents were failed in a lot of ways, not only in this way, but from a young age, they were, they were basically constantly at odds with, with the institutions. Like, yeah. my, they would, they would, they were constantly in a fight with my doctors and my schools. Mm -hmm. um, you know, at school, I was, I was, um, didn't really have a lot of friends. I had some behavioral issues, and I was also struggling in my classes. I mean, I was a bright kid. Um, whenever I would apply myself and do tests and things like that, I would get near perfect scores almost every time. But I I really struggled with concentrating and um, organization and staying focused. Um, and join the club. <laughs> um, they they had an IEP in place for me, but the mm -hmm. teachers and the schools never really enforced it. They never upheld it, and eventually I just they basically just dropped it entirely. By the time mm -hmm. I was in my junior year of high school, yeah. Um, you know, when in my earlier years, my teachers actually had told my parents that I had some pretty telltale signs of having autism. Mm -hmm. And they decided, they, they, um, they recommended that my parents get me a screening. But when they did, when they brought me to the doctor, um, basically all they could get was a young, inexperienced physician who said, like, oh, no, she's, she's too smart to be autistic. She's, <laughs> she's too well socialized to be autistic. There's, there's just no way. And they wanted to get a second opinion, but my healthcare provider was basically, nope, nope. Wow. But they did instead diagnose me, um, erroneously, I think, with ADHD, and they started medicating me for that when I was 10. Okay. Wow. Oh. So well, I was, like I said, I wasn't exactly, raising me wasn't, um, it wasn't the easiest. Mm -hmm. um, and they certainly weren't getting any help from the officials. The pe yeah, the yeah. people that they, need, they needed it most from. Um, and so when, when I got the, the gender, di gender dysphoria diagnosis and they were told all these lies about it, it was kind of like, it was almost sort of hopeful for them. Like they thought like this was the thing and that they finally, I was finally all figured out and that I would finally you, get better from You finally get help. Nope, I was just an autistic girl. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I, that's a really important point because the reality is the kids are the primary victims, but the parents are very often the secondary victims of this, mm -hmm. this ideology. Absolutely. Okay, so we have a few minutes for questions. Um, microphone over here. So if you would like to ask a question, uh, out right here. <laughs> Got one. Well, I'm at uh, the Pacific University of the Holy Cross in Rome and also Catholic University here in Washington, D.C. So thanks so much for, for your testimony, for your courage. Um, I just wanted to ask about the effects that you described of testosterone and on your mood, and also when you detransitioned, what kind of experiences also you had with respect to your mood, because you described it as though it was entirely positive, and I was surprised by that. Um, yeah. It actually wasn't entirely positive. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, at first it was like, wow, this is amazing. Like, I feel, I feel great, and, you know, I felt like I... I looked great and I had control over myself, but over time I started to lose that feeling of control and it actually made it more difficult to regulate my emotions. I was prone to, to anxiety and rage and um, I fell into a pretty deep depression. I, um, it actually caused me some physical side effects as well, um, namely um, after about a year or so of being on testosterone, I started experiencing some urinary tract side effects. Um, I was more prone to getting UTIs, and sometimes I would even get um, blood clots in my urine. And this actually got worse after I, um, after I stopped taking testosterone. Um, I did go to cold turkey off of it. I didn't really have any guidance, and I just wanted to be done with it because I was, I was sick of taking it. I was sick of lying to myself. And I just wanted to be over with it as soon as possible. But uh, the the issues with my urinary tract actually temporarily worsened for a few months. And um, 
I lost my appetite completely. Um, I lost around like 25 pounds just in a matter of, month, of two months. And um, I was having digestive issues as well as issues with my um, emotional reg regulation because, I mean, my hormones were just completely messed, messed with. And it was, I mean, not only did I have to deal with, with that, um, I mean, I mean, hormones are, are involved, sex hormones are involved in more bodily processes than we realize, and that involves emotional, that includes emotional regulation. And on top of that, I was dealing with the distress of stopping my transition, having been wrong, the shame around that, the lack of support that I was getting, and the having to deal with all the, having to think about all the, all the implications for my health and my life going forward. Hi, Chloe. Just, I'm just astonished and just blown away by your bravery. We're so grateful that you're here. Um, as I've been interviewing detransitioners lately, um, they're going to endocrinologists who are trying to help them. But they even tell me that the endocrinologists, they measure their hormone levels, they're tracking their various things that even they don't really know what to do because with every person it's different. But could you maybe shed some light on what do you think the greatest um, medical needs as detransitioners start to recover? Um, how can, for people who want to help them both recover psychologically and recover medically, endocrinologists in terms of how, what are the best helps and what are the most pressing needs that you see? And I'd also be interested in knowing what are you hearing now as you've come out versus when you started from other detransitioners? What's sort of, how has that changed even in the brief span of time you've been more public? I mean, in my experience, I didn't really get any help at all, even from the endocrinologists. I had to request my own blood tests, and they weren't routine. They weren't, um, they weren't like scheduled or anything. And um, this is, I guess, it's kind of on me for not for not scheduling. But after just a few months of uh, of getting those 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 blood tests, I I did stop. Um, but all around, I didn't really get any support. Um, even my even my therapist and my general specialists who referred me to the surgeon were kind of they were kind of in shock. They were at a loss of what to do, what to what to say to me. And I think we definitely need to revamp the the system. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm not exactly sure how, but there needs to be more. More, mon more monitoring, definitely, and um, sorry. Um, what, what was the, the last part of your question again? Second, the second half of the question is, versus when you started versus now, what is sort of, I mean, I would assume there's been an increase in what you're hearing from other detransitioners and sort of what are they telling you now that you've learned since when you first started speaking out more? Um, I mean, when I first started, um, it was really only people who transitioned as adults who were speaking out. Um, you know, there was the odd person who, uh, some of them had transitioned while they were minors, but by that point in time, they were already in their pretty, pretty, they were already in their late, their late thirties, mm. no, their, their late twenties to early thirties. Um, and there certainly weren't really any people like me speaking out, but now, now that I have, I've noticed a lot more, a lot more people who were transitioned as minors coming out, and they're getting younger and younger. Okay, just all the way over here on the left, and then we'll move to the other side of the room. Hi, Chloe. Thank you so much for sh sharing your story. I have to say that you speak very eloquently about adolescence. Uh, for somebody who is so young, and very honestly, because I think even many adults don't actually have that ability to be so transparent about the challenges that they had during adolescence, so thank you for sharing. Um, I have one question, and that is, when you were 
experiencing gender dysphoria, did you actually have an idea about your future about turning into a man, or was it in the moment about not wanting to be a girl and becoming a boy? I mean, I did have some ideas about what being a man would look like, but it wasn't really fleshed out. It was really more of a in-the-moment kind of thing. It was still about your future long-term as an adult. It was, was it in the moment about, you know, about you know, like age limited? Did you see the long-term about what it would mean or was it very limited to the present experience and challenges about being an adolescent girl? I'd say it was definitely more the latter. I mean, I was only a kid, so I, I could only extrapolate so much, but I mean, it wasn't really ever my future and how transitioning would look, look for me um, in a matter of several years, five years, 10 years, and so on. Would, it was never really addressed at all by, by the adults. Hi. Um, I, as, I really appreciate you coming forward with your story. Uh, as someone who grew up a very sensitive, creative boy in a very conservative area, I think that I've told a lot of people that if I had grown up with these online communities like Tumblr when I, when I was growing up, I could be in a very situation, uh, like similar situation. Like someone could have come, uh, a well-meaning teacher could have intervened in the sense. But at the same time, I think that there's a lot a lot of the roots of the of the current gender movement and especially children moving towards transition are issues that conservatives kind of struggle to address, like mental health, like uh, gender outside typical gender norms and rules, et cetera. If you had any advice or thoughts on how conservatives could be more open-minded to the root causes of transition, because um, I think a lot of conservatives latch onto the Dutch um, method because it, it bars gender transition as minors, right? But part of it is also that uh, Europe has become a lot more open-minded to children who grow up that are not typically masculine or feminine. So yeah, if you have any thoughts on what you think American conservatives could do to address or be open-minded to the root causes of stories like yours, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, so this sort of question about the overly rigid gender stereotypes, because you obviously struggled with mm. that. Yeah, I mean, how do we handle that? <laughs> yeah. Um, Would it have helped if somebody had said, you can be a tomboy and you're still a girl, right? Yeah. <laughs> you, you don't have to love dolls. That, that, yeah, and I was, I was often referred to as a tomboy yeah. growing up, but it always felt like that wasn't enough, like I was something different, like there was something different about me and mm -hmm. that I, I really struggled to figure out what it really was. But I, I, I agree that, um, I, I, feel like, I feel like the reason why things have gotten to this point mm -hmm. is because of both sides. Um, I mean, for a while, conservative, conservatives have mostly just been ridiculing the movement, not really looking into it and really, really researching it and kind of just brushing it off as like, oh, it's just this, this one-off crazy Weird, thing. Weird, crazy yeah. thing. Yeah. But it's not, and it's, it's really, It's really captured um, really vulnerable only children, but parents yeah. and young people and even entire institutions. Absolutely. And we've, we've really let it go unchecked. Yeah. A lot of people don't really understand just the, the nuance of the situation. Mm -hmm. I'm going to speak for the parents. We have a lot of policy wonks in here, and I am one of them, but I will say as the parent of an 18-year-old on the spectrum, you, your story is very compelling. So I'm going to ask you a question for every mom and dad and grandparent out here. What do you wish your parents had said to you, and what do you wish they had done when you came to them and said, I feel different, and this is what I think I want to do? It is kind of hard to answer questions like that because, like, I don't like placing any blame on my parents. They were, I feel like they were victims just as yeah, much as I was. Absolutely. But there, there were some things that they could have done differently. Um, and there were a lot of things that they really couldn't do much about because they just were at odds with the school and my doctors. But 
I did have pretty much unrestricted internet access growing up, hmm. and I mean, a lot of a lot of parents don't really understand just right. the dangers that that the internet presents, especially to a developing mind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes they would tell me like, "Oh, don't make friends with people on the internet. Don't give out your personal information." Like, right. But they never they never really hammered anything. They never really went into depth about the um, the, the real dangers that it could present. They kind of just it was kind of just assumed that I would follow the rules, and they never they never really monitored like what I was looking at or for how long. Um, I feel like they did give me the phone and a computer, a little while while I was a little too young. Um, but uh, had your first cell phone at eleven? Yeah, okay. um, and I, I had a computer at um, I got my first computer um, when I was. Um, Around nine, and usually I would just use it for like for for illustration sure. and uh, for like what like watching like YouTube videos or like shows or uh, like playing video games on it. I think if anything, the phone was more dangerous because it was more. It's easier. It's it's easier to access. You always have it on you, yes. and like that's 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 where most social media platforms are focused on um, mobile. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I feel like if they just controlled that a little bit and had me. Um, more focused on things in the real world, like had me in sports from a young age. I mean, they said that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, they said that they did put me. They did try to put me in sports when I was when I was pretty young. But I, I just hated it. They didn't. <laughs> I mean, most. I think most kids when they start sports, they they hate it. They. Yeah. But then eventually they come to grow out of it and really like it. I feel like they should have pushed a bit more with with that and had me more involved, just in in school and my community a little bit more. Yeah. That's a, that's a nice way to end, more uh, being in touch with the concrete things around us, mm-hmm. less access to the algorithms that control us online, especially for young kids. Mm-hmm. And that's a warning to parents. Please join me in thanking Chloe Cole.